Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for allowing us to gather together to worship you, to lift our voices up to you that they will be. Lord God, let us never take for granted this opportunity that we have. There are so many in this world, Lord God, that don't get to come together on Sundays or any day to join together in fellowship to glorify your name. Let us remember them now and lift them up to you also. Lord God, just bless this service. We ask it in your Son's holy name. In Jesus Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Mercy Hill. Good morning, guests. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Brad Frakowski. I'm one of the interns here, and I get the honor of bringing the Word of God to you today. If you have been following along with our Bible reading plan, you know that we were reading through 2 Kings chapters 3 and 4 this week. What I'm going to focus on and what you can follow along with is in 2 Kings chapter 3 verses 1 through 18. So if you do have your Bibles with you and you'd like to open it up there now, again, that's 2 Kings chapter 3 verses 1 through 18, and we read... In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Sorry, I lost my place there. And Elisha said, As the Lord, hosts, the Lord of hosts lives, 
before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind nor rain, but the stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Let us pray once more. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord God, we thank you for allowing us to get to know you better and studying it and reading it and praying on it. Lord, I just ask that you will open our eyes today to your truth. Open our ears today to your truth, Lord God. Again, I thank you for this word, and I ask that it will be a blessing to my brothers and sisters that sit here today. It's in your son's holy name I pray. In Jesus Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. So if you have been following along with the Bible reading plan, some of the names from this week's reading probably sound familiar to you. Perhaps you remember Matt's sermon not too long ago on 1 Kings 18 and 19 about the prophet Elijah confronting the king of Israel, Ahab, over his worship of false gods and placing that stumbling block before the people of Israel, causing them to also worship those gods. Or perhaps you remember Jonas' message last week on 2 Kings 2, when the prophet Elijah was taken to heaven, but not before passing the mantle of prophet onto Elisha. Today we read about one of Ahab's sons, Jehoram. We are told in verses 2 and 3 that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father Ahab or his mother Jezebel. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung on to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Jehoram did not depart from Jeroboam's sin. I don't know about you all, but when I read the Word of God and I read a statement like this, it piques my curiosity. It piques my interest. It causes me to ask, who was Jeroboam? And what was his sin that caused an entire nation, the nation of Israel, to stumble? In my studies, I discovered an interesting fact. Jehoram was not the only king of Israel to be, to be described in this way. What he clung to, the, that the, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam. In fact, almost every king of Israel between Jeroboam and Jehoram is described in the exact same way. Jehoram's brother who preceded him, their father Ahab, their grandfather Omri, and others before them. So what was the sin of Jeroboam? that made Israel to stumble, a sin that so many kings clung to. To answer this question, we must go back to 1 Kings and remember what caused the nation of Israel to split. After King David died, his son Solomon became king. Eventually, Solomon began to worship other gods and build places for those gods to be worshipped. It sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? So the Lord raised up adversaries against Solomon. One of those adversaries was Solomon's servant, Jeroboam. 
God sent a prophet to Jeroboam, and he told him that he was about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon. God told Jeroboam that he would give ten of the tribes of Israel to him, but for the sake of King David, Solomon's father, he would allow Solomon and David's bloodline to continue to rule over one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and to continue to reign in God's chosen city, Jerusalem. God told Jeroboam that if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways, do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. It would seem that Jeroboam had it pretty good. So what went wrong? What caused him to be a stumbling block for the entire nation of Israel? A stumbling block that, for generation, that would last for generations to come. As I mentioned before, God allowed the bloodline of David to continue to reign over the tribe of Judah in Jerusalem. This greatly concerned Jeroboam because he knew that Jerusalem was where the people went to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord. He believed that if the people of Israel returned to Jerusalem, that they would turn back to the king of Judah, and then he would be killed. So he violated the commandments of God. He made two golden calves and said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, mocking and copying the words of God to Moses in the commandments. He cast out the Levitical priests of God and replaced them with his own. His priests oversaw the worship of these golden calves, and they even constructed idols in the fashion of goats. He appointed a feast to mirror the feast of Judah, but instead of making sacrifices to the one true God, these sacrifices were made to these golden calves and these goats. Jeroboam became a stumbling block for Israel. Again, a stumbling block that would last for generations to come. This brings us back to our passage, where we are told that Jehoram, the king of Israel, continued in this evil. He clung to the sin of Jeroboam, continuing to be that stumbling block for Israel, to make them sin. We then read that the king of Moab rebelled against Jehoram after his father Ahab had died. So Jehoram set out to battle Moab, and he recruited an interesting ally for the battle, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. This was not the first time Jehoshaphat aligned with the king of Israel, but on this occasion, it is believed that it was because Moab had risen up against Jehoshaphat once before. In contrast with Jehoram, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the ways of David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments, not according to this new paganistic practice of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom of Judah in his hand. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. So Jehoshaphat joined forces with the king of Israel, Jehoram, and the king of Edom, and they set out to battle Moab. And apparently, they didn't properly calculate the amount of provisions they would need for the journey, specifically how much water they would need for their troops and their animals. So in a moment of desperation, in a moment of despair, Jehoram cries out, Alas, 
the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Interesting how he calls upon the Lord's name now. But Jehoshaphat, a man of the, a man of the Lord, responds, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And one of, Jeho, one of Jehoram's servants answers, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat says, the word of the Lord is with him. So they went to see Elijah. And when Elijah sees the king of Israel, the stumbling block of Israel, he exclaims, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. He's saying, go back to those prophets of Baal. Go to those prophets that worship the golden, the golden calves and the goats. But the king of Israel, Jehoram, pleads with Elisha, saying, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So he pleads to Elisha and says, No, it's not just for me, Elisha. Look at these other two men that I have brought along with me, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. And Elijah responds, saying, As the Lord of hosts lives, the Lord Almighty, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind nor rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Elisha the prophet, the one who God chose to speak through, makes it clear that there's a distinction between these two kings. The king of Israel and the king of Judah, Jehoram and Jehoshaphat, the king who clung on to the stumbling block of Israel, Jeroboam, and the king who clung on to the rock of David, God. It is not a light matter to be a stumbling block for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Luke's gospel, chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, Jesus tells his disciples, that temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him, the person who the temptation comes through, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of God's children to sin. In two of Paul's epistles, in his letter to the Romans in 1 Corinthians, he addresses the stumbling block of eating food offered to idols. In both letters, he makes it clear that through Christ, Christians were made aware that idols were nothing. They were insignificant. So eating meat that was offered to them held no religious value. However, there were new Christian brothers and sisters who came from an environment where food offered to idols did hold religious significance. And they would have most likely viewed the consumption of such food to mean something much more. So though a Christian would have had the right to eat the food offered to these idols, 
Paul instructs the Christians in both Corinth and Rome to forgo eating the food so as not to cause their brothers or sisters in Christ to stumble, to sin, to consume food to actually honor an idol. Paul writes, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. When it was weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul goes so far as to say that he will abstain from eating meat for the sake of his brother. Paul also writes, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I know that this example is somewhat hard to grasp because in our Western culture, it would be rare to come across food that has been sacrificed to an idol. So let's turn our attention to a modern example, alcohol. Now I know many of us grew up unchurched outside of the church. Some of us grew up in different Christian denominations. And I know that some denominations promote the complete abstinence from alcohol. And others primarily condemn, the excessive, primarily condemn excessive alcohol consumption, especially consumption that leads to drunkenness. I would argue that the Bible, God's Word, does explicitly condemn drunkenness. In Galatians 5, Paul includes drunkenness as one of the works of the flesh and warns that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty strong wording. In Ephesians 5, Paul instructs not to get, instructs not to get drunk with wine, and he calls it debauchery. In Romans 13, he instructs us to walk properly as in the daytime and not in drunkenness. But that is not my primary point at this moment. My primary point is that if you drink alcohol in moderation and you have a Christian brother or sister who struggles with alcohol abuse, it would be wrong to take them to a bar or someplace that's primary purpose is to serve alcohol. I would also argue that refraining from drinking alcohol around that brother or sister would honor God. After all, if alcohol is a brother or sister's weakness, and seeing us engage in that behavior, as Paul would say, wounds his or her conscience, wounds our brother or our sister's conscience, in that moment, we are sinning against Christ. Another modern-day example of being a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters would revolve kids, <laughs> would revolve around, I'm just going to give you a little warning here, but I, I'm not going to get graphic, but just to give you a heads up, would revolve around the topic of um, sex. In the church today, the topic of homosexuality and the entire LGBTQ++ agenda is heavily discussed, and justifiably so. 
but often the stumbling block of heterosexual immorality is ignored. I often wonder when when this happened. When did the church accept or not speak out against sexual immorality against straight men and women? Over and over again throughout the Bible, the word of God warns against sexual immorality. Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians shine a light on this topic. He writes, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He goes on to say, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The stumbling block can take, this stumbling block can take many forms. I think the most obvious one that is probably discussed is premarital sex. But what we encourage one another to view as entertainment can also be a stumbling block in this way. With an environment that is heavily sexualized now in every field of entertainment, it would be easy to put a stumbling block in front of our brother or sister and encourage them to watch a movie or go to a place that may express sexual deviant behavior. And yes, even what we dress. I just recently heard a debate about modesty, how we dress as Christians and whether or not Christian men or women should dress provocatively. You may or may not be surprised by some of the responses that I read. But based off of the scriptures I've read to you, what would be the proper response? You know, in this day and age, I'm sure that you all have noticed, and I'm even somewhat guilty of this at times, that we live in a self-centered, me-first culture. For example, I would guess that when I gave the example of the alcohol, that possibly at least one person in this room thought to themselves, I don't care how my drinking impacts someone else. I'll do what I want. The same thing goes with the modest dress. I don't care how my, how my immodest dress, how my provocative dress impacts a brother or sister. I'll do what I want. I want you to know, when I bring these topics to light, it is not because I haven't struggled with them myself in some aspect. I don't ever want anyone to think that I believe that I have achieved some type of holy perfection. I have not. But God has transformed my life. A scripture that has greatly influenced me in my walk with the Lord is Romans 12, 2, where it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 John 2.10 states, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, 
and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. What does it mean to love our brothers and sisters? Part of loving our brothers and sisters is not to cause him or her to stumble. And we must abide in the light to make that happen. We must continue in our personal walk with the Lord to neither stumble nor cause anyone else to stumble. This means that we must make a conscious effort to read and study the Word of God. The only way to know the truth of God is through interacting with Him and His Word and through prayer. Jesus commanded us to love one another. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we are truly Christ's disciples, we must genuinely love one another. I'm going to ask you to do a favor for me right now. It's probably going to seem a little weird. In fact, <laughs> the interns and I, well, all, I'm one of the interns, all the inter we all kind of joke around about audience participation and how that would work and what it's supposed to look like. And in fact, we think it's kind of funny the way some pastors do audience participation. But right now, I just want you to take a moment and I want you to survey the room. <clears throat> Excuse me. Whew. Voice cr cracking. I want you to survey the room. I want you to see the people in front of you. I want you to see the people to the left and to the right of you, depending on what side you're sitting. I want, to see the people, I want you to see the people behind you, because most likely, almost all of them, everyone you're setting your eyes upon, is your brother or your sister in Christ. Now, I know there are some among us that do not know him, and that's okay, and I'm glad you're here. And I pray, I pray, that you will come to the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, your Savior. But for everyone else in this room who has already done this, who has already accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, we have a responsibility. Christ laid it out. We have a responsibility to love one another. Worship band, you can come on up. I don't know how much of you pay attention to current events. I think right now you're probably getting <laughs> um, overwhelmed with the current events that are going on throughout our country. I think living here in Holmes County, we, are, we have a little bit of a buffer to some of the things that go on outside of our county. But if you are paying attention to current events, I'm guessing you've noticed something. I'm guessing you've noticed a tribalistic mentality that's beginning to shape our world. What I mean by this is people are beginning to re retreat into what they identify as their tribe. Whether it be political, meaning people are going, drawing a hard line between Republican, Democrat, and all the other uh, political parties out there. Whether it be race, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, but that's actually ethnicity. But anyways, there's a hard line being drawn, right? There's there's these tribalistic mentalities where they're saying you cannot be outside of this group. We're seeing that with even gender right now. And we're also seeing it, astonishingly enough, 
between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. But listen, if you're a genuine follower of Christ, you belong to one tribe, one tribe alone, and that is the tribe of Christ. I believe in this time of history, it is even more important that we come together as the family that God intended us to be. I don't know everybody in this room, and I know everybody in this room doesn't know me. And hear me, I am not advocating for a blind trust in one another. I don't want anyone to be placed into an awkward position where they could potentially be harmed. But we do need to step out of our comfort zones and get to know one another. The church, this church, Mercy Hill, provides many ways for us to do that. Whether it is through meeting in small churches, Throughout the week, small plug, we're going to be starting one. We're going to be starting one. <laughs> so be on the lookout for that. That'll be announced soon. So there, and there's more. I'm not, I'm not saying you got to come to mind. I mean, it'd be nice. You're all welcome. We'd have to get a bigger house. But listen, small churches, find one near you. Get connected to your brothers and your sisters. Form those relationships. The young adults group that meets, when you see that invitation extended, go if you, if you fit into that age group. I'm not even sure what that age group it is. I just know I'm too old for it. We have a men's retreat coming up soon. Men, be on the lookout for that. We have prayer meetings weekly. I heard in the announcements today, and I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't know that there was a prayer meeting coming up that you had announced. But we, that we have announcements always that there are these prayer meetings that you can come and attend. The kids, they have youth group, and they just finished vacation Bible school. Yes, it is important for us to have fellowship as adults, but it's just as important for our children to have fellowship with one another. We need to be able to support each other and not create stumbling blocks in front of one another. But we need to love as Christ told us to love. And not as the world loves, but as we were taught to love. It's a different love. It's a love that holds one another accountable. It's a love that just doesn't bow and kowtow to everything and say everything is acceptable. There is sin. That if we aren't held accountable for it now, we will be held accountable for it later. It is time for us to unite, to become a family because when times get rough, and I don't want to sound prophetic, but they're going to get rough, we need to be able to lean upon one another. As I mentioned, the vacation Bible school ended, or the vacation Bible school took place. I hear the kids gathering. <laughs> so here in a moment, we're going to show a short video, and then the kids are going to come out and sing a little song for you. So let's just finish with a moment of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this family, for these brothers and sisters that seek your face. Lord God, I ask that you will unite us, that you will have us step out of comfort zones, that we will get to know one another, that we will genuinely love one another 
to be the disciples that you told us to be. Let us not be a stumbling block for our brother or our sister. Let us protect one another, watch over one another, and love one another as you commanded. I ask it all in your Son's holy name, in our Lord and Savior's holy name, in Jesus Christ's holy name I pray. Amen.